Hello and welcome to Season 2 of Energy Futures, the podcast where we explore different perspectives on the future of energy. We covered a lot of ground in our first season and highlighted just how far-ranging the question of the future of energy really is. And with last week's passing of the Inflation Reduction Act, it's more important than ever to bring the best from around the world and across disciplines to take advantage of this momentum and advance the future of energy. This season, we'll hear from people who are working on just that. Today, we're with John Cooley, co-founder and chief of products at Nanoramic Laboratories, who's on a mission to enable the future of a decarbonized world through more effective battery materials. John, thanks so much for joining us for Energy Futures. We are thrilled to have you with us today to talk all things future of energy, your background, future of batteries, and what's happening next. To get us started, can you tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to focus on energy? Sure. My background is really in electrical engineering. I went to MIT and started with a physics degree, but I also added on a double E degree. I had always really been fascinated in the idea that you could sort of cobble together a collection of electronic components and make it do something that you wanted it to do. That still fascinates me today. And that really drove sort of my focus through college and then through graduate school. Um, I earned a PhD also from MIT from the electrical engineering department. And at MIT, I spent several years there just sort of studying electronic systems and applications and especially in clean energy. In 2009, two years before I finished my PhD, I took a business class with a lab mate. Uh, We didn't actually coordinate, but we happened to take it at the same time. It was a a class called Energy Ventures at MIT's business school. I had sort of gotten restless at the time and wanted to step out of my comfort zone. And that class went well, and we turned this final project into a business plan competition in the Clean Energy Prize, and that that went well as, as well. And then we turned that into a uh, government funding proposal to the DOE. And pretty soon after writing a $5 million proposal out of the basement of MIT, we had a, a company that, that really got off the ground. I love it. As an alum of the Climate Ventures at Stanford, it's always amazing to see things going through the program and then coming out the other side with momentum and funding and the backing to make it really come to life. There's a lot in that ecosystem that is really good. Great to hear. That's one of the things that helped catalyze everything for Nanoramic and for you. Yeah, absolutely. I've found historically that stepping out of my comfort zone has always helped me in my career. Those things that I described about taking a business class at MIT, going into the Clean Energy Prize business plan competition, and then co-authoring a grant proposal to the DOE were all things that were out of my comfort zone that I learned a lot from. And they definitely catalyzed the company that we have today, which is a very exciting company. That's really amazing. So you've talked a little bit about how you see the applied materials and all the things that, that help with the energy transition and really enable it. But your alpha product was for traditional energy. Can you talk a little bit about getting your start with oil and gas drilling, and then what made you realize that you wanted to completely switch and look ahead in terms of where your products fit? Yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot there. There's a a long and interesting story. First of all, the clean energy applications we talked about really didn't exist as markets at the time. Uh, Drivetrain electrification, to some extent, grid-based energy storage. 
and it's impressive how quickly that's changed huh it's changed definitely it's changed over the last decade now those are very real markets and the question is how fast will they completely take over the incumbent technologies it's really nice to be able to say we're in the in the midst of that as we speak today but even if those markets had existed as a small company we knew we couldn't just penetrate a high volume low margin market from the get go and so like a lot of other companies realize at that at that time is that you have to identify an alpha market that's kind of the opposite which is a very high price point and low volume market and oil and gas drilling is that market you can invent your ways into that application and you can build a business today we are developing lithium ion batteries for electric vehicle drivetrains that really are directly funded by proceeds that we've taken from major deals in oil and gas drilling and aerospace and defense applications so stepping back we wrote this proposal in the basement of MIT won that and then pretty quickly i found myself on oil and gas drilling rigs in the desert in texas and colorado and what we had done is is invented a new type of energy storage device called a supercapacitor for high temperature applications to be clear we didn't invent supercapacitors but we were the first and i believe we're still the only to have re-engineered supercaps to work at these high temperatures 150 degrees celsius and also very high levels of shock and vibration and that enabled those devices to become the first rechargeable energy storage technology to work downhole as they say in oil and gas drilling 2 miles under the ground we ended up manufacturing and vertically integrating to the point that we were not only producing these systems but also deploying them in the field through about 2015 we had a lot of success there was a moment where i was actually running one of these jobs in colorado and the customer kind of turned to me and patted me on the back and said congratulations and i i thought that was kind of it i thought our alpha market is established we're going to be successful we're going to move on to next markets and we're going to scale up and it's going to get very exciting and flying back from that trip I was just very happy and optimistic for the future and within a couple of months of that field trial the oil and gas market collapsed it went from 125 barrel dollars a barrel or so down to about $24 a barrel when that I remember happened, that day that was a rough day yeah that you know in oil and gas that doesn't sort of shrink your sales by 10 or 20%. Your customers actually go bankrupt and we found ourselves really with no business within 2 or 3 months of of that day. And that that was the end of 2015 and so it was a big change for the company. There were a lot of things that happened, but one of the things that happened was we stepped back and we said, "Okay, well, we can't do what we've been doing, but we have a lot of really cool technology. What what should we do as a company?" I sort of posed this question if we had to sell something on Tuesday what would we sell and the answer was energy storage devices and in particular this the high temperature supercap that we had designed into our systems became our first product and we secured our first purchase orders from major companies within a few weeks and also some pretty substantial engineering contracts and that kind of set us off on the next direction which was a company focused on energy storage products and we spent about a year operating under that premise and then about a year after that we realized that it's more than just the energy storage devices that we've innovated it's really the advanced materials inside of the energy storage that enable them when we realized that we had an opportunity to really broaden our market and applications and even get into technologies and products that were outside of energy storage devices 
And that second refocusing of the company on advanced materials really led us to where we are today, which is a very exciting technology in lithium ion batteries. And it's positioned as to make a big impact in clean technology applications, especially electric vehicle drivetrains. So with that in mind, I'm going to throw you a softball now, not really soft, but that's okay. Seeing what you saw in oil and gas with price cycles that become painful, then looking at energy storage devices, and then realizing that it's not necessarily the device, it's what goes in the device that makes it go. What do you think that the future of energy looks like? How do you think people will take this and move it forward? Yeah. So, I mean, I I can kind of focus on our technology and then I can also discuss more broadly, but um, the core innovation that we formulated over all the years of developing energy storage devices in harsh environments like oil and gas drilling and aerospace and defense applications like deep space missions, geothermal well drilling, these all taught us that the best innovation is innovation out of necessity. Right, I have a very acute and practical problem I have to solve, and it makes you very creative and focused. And a lot of our innovation was really to address some of those sort of acute problems in those different applications. But we formulated a way to build the internal components of energy storage devices that got rid of the most limiting materials inside of those devices. And in particular, there is a sort of a plastic, it's a high molecular weight polymer, fluorinated polymer called PVDF, and it's used to bind the active materials on the electrode inside of the device. And it also binds them to the foil that they stick to. It's called a binder. And we had to eliminate that conventional binder because it wouldn't survive the temperatures that we were exposing our products to. And that had advantages beyond just environmental and temperature requirements. It had advantages in performance. And it turns out that it has all kinds of other benefits, especially when you implement these changes in lithium ion batteries. So we refocused twice, 2016 on energy storage, and then 2017 on the advanced materials that go into energy storage. And about a year later, as the electric vehicle renaissance was starting to begin, we found a way to transfer all of that core IP and innovation from supercaps, which had been our focus up to that point, into lithium ion batteries. And that's really where things got exciting. When you eliminate PVDF from the electrodes, both cathode and anode, inside of a lithium ion battery, you have simultaneous improvements in performance cost and sustainability. And this is something that makes us pretty unique. The other thing that makes us pretty unique is that we design this technology so that it can reuse existing manufacturing equipment and infrastructure. And so that bodes really well for our ability to rapidly scale and commercialize, because our goal is really to get this technology into vehicle platforms and on the road as as fast as possible. And you count several of the very notable auto industry leaders as advisors. Has that shaped your thinking on this at all? For sure it has. It's really been interesting to see both directly from our advisors and directors, and also just kind of watching the automotive industry respond to the electric vehicle renaissance. I believe that there's more to it than just an economic drive. There's a lot of societal pressure and there's a lot of human element, I think, even in these very large and well-established auto companies that's driving the the shift and and accelerating it. And I don't mean to use puns there, but... (laughs) There is, okay, there they is were very well applied. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but there really is, they're sort of greasing the wheels. It's easier to convince everybody around you that 
we should be commercializing electric vehicles when you see what's going on with the climate and with the societal pressure that we have around us. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, on that, you've made being environmentally friendly a core part of your products and how you develop everything from eliminating materials to how you produce and the sustainability that goes into your actual production methods. One of the things that came to mind for me when looking at this is that it's really easy to do that on paper. It's really hard to do that when you are in the middle of solving a problem or navigating investor tensions and trying to meet deadlines. How do you both yourself and on behalf of the company keep that as a consistent priority and really front and center with what you're developing? Yeah, it's a really good question. And the answer is not really as obvious as you might think. There are a few different forces at play there. One of them is really just the robustness and elegance of the technology itself. And when I say that, what I mean is it's robust in the sense that we've developed this technology through trial and error in a number of different products and applications and industries over the course of at least a decade and really kind of found what works and figured out how to design it for manufacture. And maybe the second point is that over the years, we've developed what we consider to be a product development business model, which I like to think about it like a product development machine. The core innovation is really to eliminate the most limiting material from the battery. It's almost a fundamental change in the way that the battery is designed. It's not a technology that you find solves one problem but shifts the problem elsewhere. Instead, it's a technology that the more you study it, the more benefits you learn. It's sort of a constant source of good news. And the initial technical result that we saw and expected from this technology in lithium-ion batteries is that you would improve the electrical conductivity of the electrodes, which we just expect because you eliminate PVDF or a polymer from the electrodes and you replace it with an electrically conductive um, material instead. So we expected that, but as, as we went forward, we realized all kinds of things. And one of the most interesting things is that you, by eliminating PVDF, you eliminate the solvent that's required to dissolve PVDF in the battery manufacturing process. We drive the cost down because you eliminate, first of all, costly solvent, but also you eliminate quite a lot of energy from the manufacturing process. Instead of drying at 100, 165 degrees Celsius, you know, these electrodes almost dry when you just put them on the table. and what that means from a sustainability standpoint, at least in one aspect, is that you can really reduce the CO2 emissions that are generated from the battery manufacturing process. Um, and that fills one of the plot holes that I see in the transition from internal combustion engine vehicles to electric vehicles, which is that the battery manufacturing itself can generate CO2 emissions. So we're very happy that we actually reduce the CO2 emissions from the battery plant by 25%, and that's about a half a million metric tons of CO2 emissions reductions per year for a typical gigafactory. I should also point out that not only does it reduce CO2 emissions from the battery manufacturing plant, but by eliminating NMP as a solvent from the process, you're eliminating this toxic solvent that really all of the global economies recognize as a dangerous material, especially for the workers who are working on the electrode process. It's something that we're happy to eliminate. Also on sustainability, because this is an elegant technology, it's transportable from one battery chemistry to another. And we're able to enable technologies that are less favorable inherently on performance, 
but might be more favorable on, say, for instance, supply chain or ethical considerations. And there's a very clear example of that today in electric vehicle battery technology. The leading chemistry is called NMC, and the N and the C are nickel and cobalt, which come from uh, regions of the world that create ethical and also supply chain security risks. We enable an alternate chemistry, which is called LFP, and we enable it by improving the energy density of that technology. And LFP is, is called lithium iron phosphate, and, and the raw materials for that chemistry are widely sourceable. In fact, you can source them largely from the U.S. And it's been one of the big knocks on batteries, right? It's all well and good to think that you could move the world away from fossil fuels, but if you still need minerals that are rare earth and found in challenging places that, as you say, present ethical and supply chain risks, then are you really better off? That's right. That's exactly right. I think that the industry is still early. It's still a young industry. And I think it's identified what you might even consider just like a proof of concept of a technology that works. But very quickly, the industry is turning toward what you could consider total life cycle considerations of the battery. How do you recycle it? How do you use batteries at end of life? How do you reduce the amount of materials you need to mine? How do you enable technologies that don't require materials that come from places that are going to create these ethical problems? The other aspect of this is that there's a cultural component in the company that we may not start by saying this product has to have major impacts and sustainability and ethical uh, considerations. But when we see those advantages, we draw them out and we amplify them internally. And we use them as motivating factors to advance technology or accelerate product development that does have those advantages. I think that makes a huge difference. People can do what they see and what gets rewarded gets done. I used to work for a, a guy who would say all the time, that which is measured is done. And if it's rewarded, it's measured. And if people see it being rewarded, then it happens more couple of additional questions for you. Looking across the board, I'm sure you've had a lot of people who've told you that this will never work. It can't be scaled. Why bother messing with a good thing? There's a lot of common ground emerging as well. As you look back across your career and forward and what you're hearing from your advisors and from the rest of the market out there, what do you think people agree on when it comes to the future of energy? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say there's a lot that they agree on. And I think that the reason that some of these changes in the industry are happening so fast are because there's quite a lot of agreement on a number of things. First of all, it's really something that we should acknowledge and appreciate that we as a society have identified climate change as a priority and a global emergency that we have to address. And that real commercial entities are getting behind this problem and, and shifting their approach and shifting their products aggressively to address this emergency. We, we could have imagined a reality where that hadn't happened and we'd be even further behind than we are today in addressing this problem. I'm glad that there is quite a lot of agreement on that and it really pervades these companies. It's this first and foremost topic of discussion in our conversations, even with major automakers about commercializing their technology, commercializing our technology. And I'm very happy about that. There are a number of other things that we all agree on. We all agree that we've got electric vehicles today that work and that prove the concept, but to really get them widely adopted quickly, 
we need to do a few things. We need to reduce costs enough that they can really be affordable across demographics and geographies. There's been a ton of progress there. So I think we can be optimistic, but it still requires work. Some of that work is just going to come naturally from supply chain scale up. And some of it will come from additional technology advancements that continuously happen over the coming decades. We also have to improve performance in certain aspects. You know, there are geographies like very cold climates where an electric vehicle can lose substantial range in the winter. That's an example of a product requirement that needs to be addressed better by especially the battery technology and chemistry. And then there's rapidly becoming agreement around supply chain risk, ethical considerations, and sustainability. And when I say sustainability, a subheading there is the CO2 foot footprint of the batteries and the electric vehicles themselves. Those things are very quickly becoming the focus. And there's quite a lot of agreement, especially in the European auto market, that these are not secondary considerations, that these should be primary considerations. And they're influencing things about how do you plan your manufacturing processing and logistics to reduce energy consumption, to reduce CO2 emissions from the manufacturing process, and to design the process so that you can recapture valuable materials at the end of life. This is happening very fast. I think that the industry is going to flip over uh, from internal combustion engines to electric vehicles very soon. I think this year, the auto industry is going to reach certain tipping points in the adoption of electric vehicles that are going to accelerate that. I also believe that the availability of a wide range of different models and types of vehicles is going to accelerate that as well. In particular, the great example is electric pickup trucks in the U.S. That's going to break I was going to say that electric Ford F-150. Yes, I've been tracking the electric Ford F-150 since it was announced. The first deliveries happened in the end of April this year. Mm. I've been very excited about that because it in the U.S. it's going to break up the demographic splits among users who buy these vehicles. Yeah, that was always a really interesting proof point that, yes, electric vehicle sales have gone up many hundredfolds, but you still sell in the U.S. more Ford F-150s than electric vehicles en masse. And now that Ford F-150s are going to be part of that EV count, that's a very different frame of reference than even five years ago, even three years ago. That's right. Okay. So penultimate question for you. What's been the single biggest change you've seen in the energy landscape in your career to date? The single biggest change. So it's hard to say pick one. I mean, there are a few very interesting things that have happened. If I had to pick one, the single biggest change in the energy technology landscape to date has probably been in the last even 24 months, this flip in the auto industry from conservatism in EV adoption to full-on aggressive investment and conversion to electrified drivetrain. And that has really changed everything for the auto industry and it's changed everything for the energy storage industry as well. Electric vehicles are going to be the dominant customer for lithium ion battery companies for the foreseeable future. And that market is projected to grow factors even in the next five to seven years. One of the key underlying changes that's enabled that has been the reduction of lithium ion battery costs to the zone of $100 per kilowatt hour. When we started the company in 2009, 
$100 per kilowatt hour for a lithium ion battery was the holy grail. And at the time, it was about a factor of 10 higher. It was about $1,000 a kilowatt hour. And all of the conversations in these sort of DOE seminars and workshops about how do you advance the technology were about getting from $1,000 a kilowatt hour to 100. And we're there today. In fact, in Neocarbonics at Nanoramic Labs, we talk about bringing lithium ion battery costs down from $100 a kilowatt hour or so to 50 or $60 a kilowatt hour. So that, that's been a huge shift. But there have been other things that have been really interesting and related to that, especially on costs. Quietly in the background, as everybody's talking about electric vehicles, the grid is converting pretty rapidly over to renewable and, and clean energy sources, especially solar and wind. And one of the reasons for that is because it's just cheaper to build. So that's great. And it's also really serendipitous because when you move from internal combustion engine to electric vehicles, really what you're doing is you're moving the CO2 emissions from the vehicle to the grid. And so what you need to happen at the same time is for the grid to move to clean energy sources. And that happens to be going on. You know, what I love about what you just said, and it goes with some of what we were talking about on sustainability is that all of these things are the right thing to do, but it's not out of the goodness of your heart. It's it's good business. So just talking about the changes around cost, making things acceptable, whether it's lower cost per kilowatt hour batteries overall to it being cheaper to build a greener grid. Those are some pretty substantial changes and some really good signals for the future of energy and sustainability. Yeah, I think we can all be optimistic. I mean, we have major and serious problems to solve, but there are very real forces at play that are that are causing some of these changes to happen both on vehicles and on and on the grid. Last question for you and think about, you know, how you might describe this to someone who has no background in the industry at all. Why should people who care about the future of energy care about the materials for batteries and energy storage? Sure. Well, I would say if we're going to do these things in order to reduce CO2 emissions, we also have to be very careful about how we use these materials in a way that reduces or eliminates the CO2 footprint of sourcing those materials. Imagine that you can reuse all of your raw materials in perpetuity and imagine that you design the process so that you've eliminated CO2 emissions inherently. Now, the industry, if you think about it as a CO2 emissions eliminating industry. You have designed into that industry factors that make it um, sustainable, really, in the purest sense of the word. I think it's a pretty exciting time for the industry and for you, John. It seems like you have found something that is at exactly the right time and exactly the right place. I can't wait to see all the things that happen next for you. Thank you so much for spending a little bit of time with us today. Thank you, Catherine. It was an interesting discussion. Thanks for having me on. Thanks. There's never been a more exciting time to be working in energy and sustainability. Season two of Energy Futures will continue to highlight people working on different parts of the future of energy. Tune in for our next episode coming soon.